0: Good morning. morning. I did have um, at least one brother say that he would like to participate in this next series. And so I again want to refresh the uh, offer that if there are brothers who want to participate in this series on the character studies of the Bible, uh, to let me know who it is that you'd like to talk to us about and what it is you'd like to say. And um, we could probably put you on the schedule. So. Don't be shy. Um, We're going to start at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. It was 2.28 p.m. local time, May 12th, just last week. When the ground started shaking violently and buildings began to collapse, uh, one building buried hundreds of students, trains derailed, and the ground shook and it shook and it shook for two and a half to three minutes. The earthquake that uh, was centered in the Sichuan, China region, was a magnitude of 7.9 on the Richter scale. Eight minutes after it shook there, it was felt in other countries outside of uh, China. Uh, I think it was CNN or one of the stations put a map of the United States over top of China with Idaho or Iowa some, somewhere in the center of, of uh, of uh, the United States was centered where the epicenter was on the map. They overlaid it over China. And they said basically that earthquake was felt on the East Coast as well as the West Coast. Um, you know, obviously in different degrees. As of yesterday, May 17th, the officials in China are reporting that the death toll could easily climb to 50,000 people. There are, are 29,000 people who are known dead. And there are um, 14,000 missing and presumed dead and buried. About one week earlier, the country of uh, Myanmar was devastated by a cyclone that destroyed vast regions of the country. If you've been following the news, the official word is that 78,000 people are dead. 56,000 people are missing. That's if the reports are true. And you know that the government there has been very closed lip about what has been really going on in the country. The death toll there could easily top more than 150,000 people. To give you an idea of what that means in, in terms that we can appreciate, it's like a terrible storm has just hit the Bay Area, so bad that every man, woman, and child who lives in San Lorenzo, San Leandro, and Castro Valley combined are dead. That's how many people we're talking about. Over 2 million people are homeless. And um, so it would be like the Bay Area was just totally wiped out, devastated. That's what, it's, that's what it's like. This past week brought with it news of flooding in some states, fires out of control in others. Some of the country is reporting record uh, rain shortages, which will result in drought this summer. In South America, the country of Chile is experiencing mountains that are groaning and spewing out lava and dust and ash and devastating towns. There are rice shortages throughout the world right now. Rice is a staple of most countries, um, and uh, it is in short supply. And with devastation uh, such as we've seen happen over the last week or two, It's even in shorter supply than before. Huge spikes in the price of this staple. It'll put it out of reach of many people uh, in the world. Food riots and protests have uh, been seen and have broken out in at least 28 countries in the world in the last couple of weeks. And that countries from Africa to Europe, South America, Asia and many of the island nations that are suffering from a shortage of food we live on a on a planet that seems to be groaning and writhing in pain in fact in paul says in romans 8:22 for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now i have been at the birth of all seven of my children and I have seen, the, I've heard the groaning. I have seen the pain on my wife's face as she has delivered the seven children. And as the pain becomes more intense, the the I, I just wish I could take her place. I just wish I could be there and do something other than hold her hand and, and say, breathe, you know. But the Bible compares childbirth and the pain associated with childbirth uh, um, to the conditions that will take place in the last days. And the whole world, from the animal kingdom to the natural elements, uh, from the land to the sea, to the sky, to the heavens, all of creation is sighing and suffering pain like a woman in childbirth. And it seems like the contractions are getting stronger and stronger And we are getting closer and closer to the end. As we watch in horror at one disaster after another and even personally feel pain and suffering of sickness and disease or wars, violations of human rights, many people ask the question, why does God allow all of this suffering to take place? Why does God allow it? Some people even call into question the goodness of God. If God is good... Or if he is if a God of love, then why does he let this world be in the condition it's in? Why do we have a world that seems to be breaking apart at the seams? Well, the answer to the question, of course, is that we have to go back and we have to look at our relatives. Because we're to blame. I believe it was the London Times newspaper that asked its readership, what's wrong with the world? They had a big headlines. What's wrong with the world? And they just left it like that, and they asked the readership to respond in their, uh, to their, their question. And uh, over the weeks that followed, a stream of correspondence followed, and uh, the shortest answer was perhaps the best answer that came in. A well-known British author, a Christian, wrote, In response to your question, what's wrong with the world? I am. That was his answer. I am. Ravi Zacharias tells of a discussion he and others had with a business tycoon who asked why God was silent when there was so much evil in the world. At one point, someone asked the businessman, since evil seems to trouble you so much, I would be curious to know what you have done about the evil that you see within yourself. There was what Zacharias called a red-faced silence. What have you done? about the evil you see within yourself? What would be your response? No one is really in a position to point an accusing finger at God and say, why have you done this? Why have you allowed this? Well, the Bible clearly tells us that this is not the way God created us, and it is certainly not the way God created the heavens and the earth. So what went wrong? For that, we have to trace our ancestry back some 6,000 years, to the Garden of Eden, where we find our first parents, Adam and Eve. Some of you have been working on your family tree. I'll save you a lot of trouble. It starts with Adam and Eve, okay? And it doesn't get any better from there. You've gone back as far as you can go when you get there. The Bible starts with this profound statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Thus, in one simple statement... God immediately eliminates all myths and all evolutionary theories. The only one who was there, apart from the angels who were watching, was God Himself. And He tells us exactly what took place. He created out of nothing all that exists. He spoke the Word and the worlds came into being. In the first chapter of Genesis, He describes the order of this creation. And it took him six days to complete all of creation. And then on the seventh day, he rested. Not because he was tired, because he was finished. So he finished it all in six days. And so we want to take a look briefly at what the original creation was like and and, and the order in which uh, he created various things. On the first day, we read in verses 3 to 5 in uh, chapter 1, He created light out of darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Listen carefully to what it says. And it was good. Okay? It says that very clearly in the scripture. Then it says there was a morning and an evening, the first day. Some of you kids are brilliant scientists, so maybe you can answer this question for me. How is it that we have day and night? What happens to give us day and night? You're not one of the kids. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so the rotation of the earth. I have gray hair, but I'm not that old. (laughs) Okay, so the rotation of the earth. What happens? The earth goes around once on its axis, right? 24 hours, you have a morning and an evening. That's day. That's what happens. 24 hours, the first day. On the second day, verses 6 through 8, he divided the waters above from the waters below. He called the waters in the firmament above heaven. There was a morning and an evening again, a second 24-hour day. Third day, God formed the dry land, and he called the land earth, and the waters seas. Again, listen carefully. And it was good. His original creation was good because He is good. On the same day, God also made all the plant life, from the herbs of the field to the trees. And He built into His creation the ability to reproduce itself after its own kind. There was an order to all of His creation because God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. And God saw, it says again, that it was good. The morning and evening went by, the third 24-hour day. Now let me pause and just say a quick word here uh, to those that that may think that it took millions and millions or billions of years for all of this to take place. There are those who are believers who think that, yeah, it, it even took thousands of years, not billions, but thousands, that a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and they input that verse into Genesis 1 and say, Each of these was a thousand years or an eon, some kind of an age. It's really simple to answer the question. Is that true or is it false? It's false. Why is it false? Well, really simply, plants that he made here on the third day need sunlight to live. You learn that in Biology 101. If plants do not have sunlight, they die. Plants, even in the shade at my house, die. I know some of the plants in the sun do too, but that's beside the point. Okay? That's no fault of theirs. (laughs) But they need sunlight to live. And there was no sun yet. The plants were made on the third day, and there's no sun. The sun, interestingly enough, was created on the fourth day. That's another point of contention with evolutionists. The sun was not here first, the earth was. In fact, the earth is central. It was placed here first. And then God created the sun and the moon and all the stars. Quite opposite of what you hear in the scientific realm today. But that's the way it happened because God was there and He's telling us that's what happened. On the fourth day, God formed the sun and the moon. Oh, yes. I love it when it says this in the scripture. He made the stars also. It's almost like, it's not an afterthought, but the way it's written, it's almost like an afterthought. And oh, by the way, he made all the stars. Rick, I think, told us, or Andy told us a couple of weeks ago about the, just the sheer number of galaxies that contain a sheer number of stars. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. And he made the stars also, he says. That's, that's God. But he did it on the fourth day. First he made planet Earth before anything else, then he formed the other heavenly bodies. The light from the sun, the moon, the planets, and the stars was already at the Earth because twice God says in this passage that he made them to give light on the Earth, and it was so. And so many people stumble on this and say, yeah, but it takes millions of light years for light to travel from the planets or or, or from the stars to the Earth How could it be that it's, the planet is maybe only 6,000 years old? Because it was so. God said so. You know, the moment you start being stumbled by, by science or, or discoveries and you, and you are troubled by, by what it says compared to the Word of God, you're on the wrong page. Believe what God says. It's truth. And let all science catch up to it later, okay? Because God isn't going to contradict himself. And it was good, he says. The 24-hour period was the fourth day. On the fifth day, God created the sea animals and the birds, and the sea and the sky were teeming with life, fully developed, fully mature, and fully capable of reproducing after its own kind. By the way, this, is, uh, this answers the question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? It's the chicken. Okay? He made a fully mature, fully functioning chicken to reproduce after its own kind. So there you have another philosophical question that's answered for you here at Calvary Bible Chapel. And all creation produces its own kind. And you children know this and you've seen it yourself. A whale produces a whale. It does not produce a porpoise, does it? And a porpoise produces a porpoise and not a turtle. And a turtle produces a turtle, not a monkey. And a monkey produces a monkey, not a man. That 24-hour day was the fifth day, Genesis one 20 through 20-23. On the sixth day, God created all the land animals, from the cattle to the insects to all of the creeping things. Again, they were fully mature, fully capable of reproducing, and they did so after their own kind. And God looked upon his creation, and he declared it to be good. And again, we see this over and over again in the first six days of creation, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. That's how God created the heavens and the earth. And that's how God created us as well. Then God said, verse 26, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food, also to every beast of the earth. To every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So in six days, we see that God made everything that exists. And built into it the means to reproduce after its own kind. He created man in his own image and according to his own likeness and gave man the right or the authority to rule over all of his creation. He gave him that privilege, that responsibility over all the earth to be fruitful, to to multiply, to populate the earth and to be in charge of the things that are on planet earth. Interesting that God gave man, at this time, a vegetarian diet of herbs and fruits. Any seed-yielding um, plant was given to him for food. And among the animals, there were no carnivores. What's a carnivore? Shh, Russ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very good. So it's a meat-eating animal. It's an animal that eats other animals. Right. There were none. There were, what kind of animals then? You know what the other names are. Herbivores, okay, and yeah, omnivores. Very good. Okay, so they would eat um, plants or fruit. Well, I'm sure you want more details about how God made Adam and Eve, and God graciously gives those details to us in chapter two. So let's take a look there. In verse seven, we read this: "And the Lord God formed man." of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. At once this does away with evol- the evolutionary myth. It's simple. God created man out of dust, breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living being. It's that simple. That's what happened. God was there. He tells us what happened. God caused life. And in in doing so, he created a full-grown fully functioning, standing up on two legs kind of man. When God made Adam, he said, it is very good. Adam was made a perfect man. There were no problems of any kind. He had no sadness. There was no sickness. There was no sorrow or pain or suffering. There was no earthquake on earth or pestilence or sickness. There were no storms that we've seen in this last week. Nothing like that at all. It was perfect. He was perfect, and it was a perfect environment. I've talked to people about their sin, and they often say, oh, if only I didn't have the parents I have. That's, that's a lie of psychology. They, they say that the reason you're the way you are is because of your parents. Oh, if only I, was, if I grew up in a different kind of a family. Oh, if only I had this, if only I wasn't in poverty, if only I had riches, if only this, if only that, then then I'd be okay. No, you wouldn't. Adam had a perfect environment. Adam was perfect. He was without sin, that's what I mean. He was without sin. He lived in a perfect environment. I've probably told you the story about a time I did a ride-along with Tom Rodriguez, and uh, we were with the guy. We picked up a guy who had... Uh, uh, a warrant out for his arrest and on the way to the station as he, he was arrested and going to go to jail i said to him do you have any religious background at all and he said yeah i'm a christian <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know he obviously wasn't i mean as the conversation went on and i said uh so why do you have a warrant out for your arrest he says well because i uh, nearly killed somebody i said on purpose he says yeah of course I said, wow. And I said, who was it? And he says, well, it was a guy who was dating my ex-wife. And so, you know, I took my car and I tried to run him over. And I said, wow. I said, no wonder they want to pick you up. He says, then he changes up just like that. He says, you know, I really got to get out of the Bay Area. The Bay Area is just, you know, just full of people who are so bad and so awful. And he starts talking about how he has to live, go away somewhere and live in a different environment Because the environment is corrupting him. And I thought, you're the one on your way to jail. You're the one who almost committed murder. But this is the lie that he was believing. That if he could just get out of the environment and somewhere in a what he considered to be a perfect environment, he'd be okay. No, he wouldn't. The problem with this world, as the famous author said, I am. I am. God planted a garden in Eden. And that is where He placed man. In the garden, the Lord God planted every kind of tree that was beautiful to look at and good for food. Now, I have a little bit of a green thumb. I actually enjoy gardening. I enjoy getting out and and working the dirt and tilling the soil and, and pruning and twisting and causing or helping, I think, helping things to grow. And I love fruit from my own garden. There's nothing better than an apple fresh off the tree. There's nothing better than a tomato off of a vine. I don't know what they're serving in the, in the grocery store, but those aren't tomatoes. <laughs> those are plastic. You know, I mean, they do. They taste like plastic with water in them. But a tomato fresh off the vine, there's nothing like it. Can you imagine? There were no grocery stores back in Adam's day. He would just go up and pluck a fruit off the tree. The crispest, juiciest apple you could ever eat. The the, the freshest plum that you could ever have. The juiciest uh, of all fruit. Freshly uh, picked. Completely ripe. Imagine the taste of a perfect peach. A perfect apricot. A perfect cherry. Man, my mouth's already watering. Ah, we 're lunch, but in the garden, God also planted two more trees: one was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other was the tree of life. Theologians like to call this period of time the age of innocence, the age of innocence. Man did not know good from evil; he did not under, he did not know sin, and God made a perfect environment and gave it to man with everything he needed for life and enjoyment and satisfaction. It was all there. Everything he needed was there. He would rule over the animals. He would eat in abundance. And it would all be so very, very easy. Now, there was work to be done. Don't get me wrong. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it was easy work. It was not difficult. There was no toil involved in it. And best of all, there was no sin. There was no stress, nothing strenuous. There was no need for pain medication, or for health care or for morticians. The temperature was perfect. There was plenty of food, plenty of water, and there were no enemies of any kind. The animals were tame. Remember? There were no carnivores. No one, no animal to come after them. God placed Adam. In this garden, to tend it and to keep it. And Adam had work to do. That was tending the garden, keeping it, probably maintaining it. So work is not part of the curse. I hope you understand that. Work is not part of the curse. We'll talk about what is part of the curse in a minute. He was the first gardener or groundskeeper. And it was perfect because that's how God made the planet. That's how God made him. And in this perfect garden, there was only one rule to follow. That's it. Can you imagine a life like that with only one rule to follow? Kids, how cool is that? Can you imagine living in a home where there's only one rule and that's it? One rule. That was it. In the Garden of Eden, there was one rule. There was one tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam and Eve were not permitted to eat from it. That was it. You have to understand this. There was plenty of other trees for them to eat from. They would never starve. They would never go hungry. They would never be without. There was one tree that they were forbidden to eat from. Of every tree of the garden, God said, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the seriousness of this command, though. This one rule had a serious, serious consequence, and that is death. So many trees to choose from, so many trees to enjoy, but the penalty for transgressing this one rule was death. Historians um, and um, PBS and other... Uh, uh, science Channel and, and all these things that go back into man's history often talk about men from their vantage point as being stupid, being dumb. You know, kind of ape-like creatures that can't communicate, can't speak, uh, have difficulty knowing how to do things and all the rest of it. I don't believe for a moment any of that stuff. It's, it's science fiction to me. It's, it's uh, fairy tales. I believe Adam was probably the most intelligent man who ever lived on the earth. I believe that, apart from the Lord Jesus, of course, but I believe that from uh, as a man, he was, he was very, very intelligent. Adam was given the privilege in the garden, not only of ruling over all of the animals and so on, but he was given the privilege of naming every animal that uh, was there. Now, can you imagine, how, how many of you named your own children? Okay. We went through this seven times. I read those book names of baby names seven times. <laughs> and I thought hard and long about every name I chose for my children. Can you relate? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. And then we have the audacity of giving kids Two proper names and a last name, the last name was easy. they just had to take mine that was it was given okay, well we had to get, come up with two so fourteen names that we had to come up with that was an incredible task for a mindless kind of a guy, you know, but can you imagine Adam having to name every child- every uh not every child, but he did that too, but all the animals <clears throat> you can imagine the task before him. There are currently, and I'm sure there were more back then because so many species are extinct today, there are 10,000 known species of birds. There are over 5,400 known species of mammals. I think there are 950,000 known species of insects. So you can imagine the task before him. Can you imagine trying to name them all. I think Adam had great intelligence. For every animal, Adam must have noticed that there was a corresponding female for every male. Yet in all of the animal kingdom, there was not a helper comparable to him. We see that in, in Genesis 2.20. God makes a clear distinction here between his animal kingdom and man. And by this statement, he makes it clear that we were never part of the animal kingdom man never was part of the animal kingdom man is not a more highly evolved creature we are separate and distinct from all the animals that God created Adam looked and he found nothing comparable to him that was by the way the first science experiment he gathered all the data there was and the conclusion was that there was no one compatible for him so God, in his kindness, said it is not good that man should be alone. And he caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and he removed a rib and made a perfect woman from that rib. She would be the perfect helper for him. In verse 23, it says, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of men. Now, you may recall last week that we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 11, it says this. It talks about the history of Israel and the history of the Old Testament. And it says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So there are lessons for us to learn from the Old Testament stories that we have. Uh, and uh, this morning, uh, the story of Adam and Eve. So we're going to take a, take a look at some of the lessons that we should learn personally and also as a church. What should we learn from Adam and Eve? First of all, marriage is a union between a man and a woman. I have one amen. I'm going to say it again. (laughs) Marriage is a union between a man and a woman. Thank you. Genesis 2.24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Whose idea was this? It was God's idea. He invented marriage. He invented this union. God instituted marriage, and he brought the first couple together. God intends for a marriage to be between a male and a female, not a man with a man, not a woman with a woman. And as this is not original with me, the first couple was named Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Some of you have heard that before. Okay? But by bringing a woman to man, God set in order the things the way they should be. This week, this this past week, the Supreme Court of California overturned a ban on same sex or homosexual marriages and pitted itself against the word of God and against the order that God established back in the Garden of Eden. To me, that's very troubling when a court uh, steps in like that and does that. Nature itself teaches us that God has created male and female in order to be fruitful and multiply and reproduce after our own kind. A same-sex marriage, of course, goes against all nature. Another thing we learn here is that the first marriage was monogamous. That's a big fancy word that just means this. It was one man with one woman. Okay? A man and a woman, one, one, and one. Marriage was good. And it was meant for our best. In the statement that is made here, a man shall leave his father and mother. It really means he will forsake his father and mother. In other words, there will be a separation from his father and mother and he will cleave or literally be glued to his wife. That's how strong the union should be. And they shall become one flesh. It underscores God's intention that couples are not to divorce. That's really what he's driving at here. In fact, the Lord Jesus quotes this passage in the New Testament when the question of divorce comes up. And he says, So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It's interesting that Jesus said that in the New Testament thousands of years later. When there is a union, a marriage union between a man and a woman, God sanctifies it or or approves of it, if you will, and it is stated here that God has brought them together. And I am sure that God is not bringing any male and male or female and female together. That is not his intention at all. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Another thing we learn uh, from, from this passage is that marriage is the beginning of a new headship. God has designed order in all of his creation. And he places authority in all aspects of creation and those who are subject to that authority. There is order in the family with the parents having authority over the children, and the children being subject subject to the uh, parents. There is authority. uh, The husband has the authority over his wife. He is the head of the house. The wife is to be subject to him. When a man marries, he is to leave his parents, come out from under the authority that he was under uh, as his parents, and start out a new authority structure, if you will. He is now the head. He is now directly responsible to the Lord for his own family. And his wife and his children are to be under his authority and under his care, of course. It establishes a new union where he is the head of the household. And this pattern God established and continues. And it promotes a a well-ordered society when we have it existing. Now, I want to say one other thing about man's headship. Man's headship over the woman is not a result of the fall. Man was head prior to the fall. And that still remains today. Okay, there are some lessons for the church. I look around the room today and many of the women have head coverings on their head. And they and they say, well, why? Why do women... In fact, we've had people come in as visitors and say, why do women wear hats in your church? Why do they wear head coverings? Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, it says this, because every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. John comes over for, uh, to my house for breakfast uh, from time to time. <laughs> John always wears a baseball cap. That's his normal outfit, you know, it's casual. And he can come to my house casual. He doesn't have to get dressed up. And we'll sit down and we'll serve him uh, toast and coffee. I said, let's pray. Hat comes right off. Now, he does it naturally. He takes his hat off. Why does he do it? It's out of respect. It's out of honor to the Lord. It's just as shameful for a man to wear his hat while praying or prophesying as it is for a woman to not wear a head covering when she's praying or prophesying, according to the Scripture. The head of a woman is man, 1 Corinthians 11.3 says. But there's another uh, section here in in verses eight and nine of First Corinthians eleven. For man is not from the woman, or, no, pardon me. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. In the order and the reason for the creation of woman is significant in God's eyes. It doesn't make her less a person, but it is the proper order in God's eyes. Another reason that's given in the same passage, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. There's another lesson for us to learn from this passage in Genesis that is told to us, and we don't have time today to go over it, but it's told to us in Ephesians 5, 22 through 32 And it has to do with Christ and the church. The marriage union... Between a man and a woman is, should be a reflection of the union that we have as believers, the church has uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful passage, and I'll just recommend it to your reading this afternoon Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 32. So if God created something so good, so wonderful, an environment that was perfect for Adam and Eve, and they had everything they could possibly want or need. What went wrong? How did we get from the Garden of Eden to a world that is splitting apart at the seams as we have this day? Well, the answer is found for us in Genesis 3. So let's take a look there. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? No, It's not, it's not really quoting the Scripture accurately, or, or quoting uh, God's words accurately at all. Revelation 12.9 says, The serpent of old, called the devil... And Satan that's who we were talking about here in chapter 3 he deceives the whole world he is a deceiver that's his um, that's the way he operates he is the one who came to Eve and deceived her well how did he do it first he deceives her into thinking that God is withholding something good something that is for her best for her needs He challenged her about eating from every tree of the garden. And Eve replied by adding to what God had said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. The woman seized on her statement, and he says, You shall not surely die. That's a direct contradiction to what God had said. For God knows, he says, that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's strategy has not changed. He used this strategy in the Garden of Eden, and he still uses it today. It hasn't changed. The Bible says we are not ignorant of his devices. And what it means is just take a look at how he operates. Here in the Garden, when he was tempting the Lord Jesus, and in different passages of Scripture, you'll see that he he hasn't changed. His method is still the same. And we're just as gullible and just as naive when it comes to his temptations. How does he do it? He begins with causing us to question what God had to say. It's a question. Is it really what God said? You begin to have doubts. You begin to have questions. You begin to have, begin to think through, well, maybe that's really, really not what God said. Maybe, maybe that's not quite right. We should be so solid in the Scripture that we know what God says and we say, just like the Lord did, thus saith the Lord. How did the Lord respond to the temptation? Now, let me say this. There's a huge difference between the temptations that Jesus faced and the temptations that we faced. Both were real temptations. But what the temptations of Jesus showed is that there was nothing in Him to respond to sin. That is not true of us. We respond readily to sin. And so we must be aware of his devices. But he used the same kind of temptation. The idea was, you know, he begins to cause questioning about God's word. The Lord responded each time with, thus saith the Lord. The Bible says, or the word of God says, um, man shall not live by bread alone, and so on. And even when he took the most devious turn, and he said, and, and Satan himself quoted scripture, he quoted it completely out of context and he quoted it in such a way that it, 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 uh, it um, uh, took away its real meaning. And the Lord responded back and said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. We must know the word of God and we must use the word of God when it comes to um, dealing with Satan's strategies. Satan's strategies first to cause questions or doubts. And then he just flatly contradicts it. I mean, it's just blatant contradiction of his word. He attacks believers the same way today. He sows doubts. He sows questions. He sows uh, innuendos about the character of God and the care of God, questions about the authority and the accuracy of the word of God. And the moment we acquiesce, he goes for the jugular and he, and he, uh, he uh, starts accusing um, uh, or, or tr- denying the very word of God itself. And how many have fallen to this deceiver? No wonder when we get to the um, New Testament, the Lord says of him that he is a liar. No wonder we see in Revelation that he is a deceiver. That's what he is and that's what he's done. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate Some like to uh, liken this to a passage in the New Testament. He used the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was good for food. The lust of the eyes. It was pleasant to the eyes. And the pride of life, desirable to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate. She did not consult with her head. Adam was her head. He was responsible for her. And she did not consult with him at all. She assumed the place of authority and she disobeyed God. The Bible is very clear. She was deceived. She was deceived by Satan. For this reason, because she was deceived, women are not permitted to take authority in the place in the church. Did you know that? That's what the scripture says in um, 1 Timothy 2. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's the place of the authority structure we talked about. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgressions. This is the reason that is given for the order that we have in the church today. So 6,000 years later, there is still an effect from what took place in the Garden of Eden. Now it says, She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Make no mistake about it. Adam ate the fruit. He ate it just as much as she did. But he was not deceived. So what that tells me is that Adam knowingly saw what she did, knew that it was wrong, and took it and ate it anyway. He was not deceived. He disobeyed willingly. And as the head of the wife, the head ultimately of his family to come, and as the federal head of the human race, it's a term that we use to describe someone who is in the place um, or position to make a decision and cause it to have repercussions to many, many other people. For example, President Bush signs a law into uh, into effect. He is acting as the federal head, as the head of the country, and we all are subject to that signing, that law, Right? Adam was the federal head of the human race. When Adam acted, he acted on behalf of you and me. When he acted, it was as if you acted. You say, well, that's not fair. Yeah, it is fair. Because had you been Adam, you would have done the same thing. When Adam acted, where were you? You were in Adam. You were in Adam at that time. You just didn't show up for 6,000 years. Okay? Okay? And so when Adam acted, you did too. In Romans 5.12, it tells us about this. It says, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Adam is the one who is held accountable. Just like the sign that says on the, on the president's desk, the president of the past, the buck stops here. Or just like the captain is responsible for his ship, or the general for his troops, so Adam is responsible as the head for the actions of those who are under him. But the fact is, Adam took the fruit. He transgressed God's one law. And when he sinned, so did you and so did I. And we became sinners by nature. We are sinners through and through. We sin because we are sinners. We are sinners because... When Adam sinned, we did too. Child of Adam. Just think of what you inherited from him. Sin. You inherited death. And all of the destruction that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. All of that came as a result of adam's one act the bible says the wages of sin is death the bible says in verse seven then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings and they heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden in the cool of the day and adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the lord god among the trees of the garden by the way we've been talking in the earlier class about evangelism and when you get to an issue where people recognize that they are sinners, do you know what they tend to do? They tend to hide. They tend to hide. They tend to want to, 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 to shun that thought. And they try to clothe themselves in their own righteousness. They try to make themselves look better because they're seeing how ugly their sin is in the presence of God. But you should be watching for that as you talk to people about the gospel. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They sowed fig leaves as if somehow that was going to hide them from God. And they hid from God. Now, God we talked about asking good questions. God is a great question asker. And he asks a question here. Adam, where are you? Do you think God didn't know? God who knows everything? God who sees everything? Do you think God didn't know? Why did God ask? Notice it's not a yes-no answer. Adam, are you hiding behind that tree? <laughs> no? <laughs> okay, it's not a yes-no question. Where are you? What is he asking? Yeah. Why are you hiding? Why are you hiding? What is the reason that you're hiding from me? And God knew where Adam was, and Adam knew where Adam was, and God knows where you are today too. Are you hiding from God? Is there sin in your life that you have never, you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sins and you're hiding from God? God is asking you the same question. Don, where are you? Put your name in there. Where are you? Where are you in your relationship with God this morning? And he's been calling out your name. And he knows the relationship has been severed because of sin. And he wants you to be reconciled to him. This is the beautiful thing about this passage. Not the sin, but the fact that God didn't right there and then destroy the human race. And he could have. He could have wiped planet earth clean and said, I'm not going to ever do this again. But he didn't. Because even before he created man, and he knew that man would sin, Jesus Christ, the Lamb, slain before the foundation of the earth. God put man here. as part, part of the reason He put man here was to demonstrate His love, His grace, His mercy, His compassion, things that could not be displayed except through this means. What a horrible thing that we had to put God through this. But what a wonderful thing it is to see His grace and His mercy in action and His love. Adam admits to eating the fruit. But notice he blames both God and the woman. The woman blames the serpent. And the whole world is plunged into sin and ruin. The curse is upon us and upon our children and upon the earth. And all of creation groans under the weight of of the curse that was brought upon it. Listen to what it says. And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Remember I said earlier, Adam was not deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing when he took the fruit. And so he had no one to blame but himself. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat the dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You shall bruise; He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return." Well, the curse involves several things. It involves the snake, which was used as an instrument of Satan's evil. Remember, Satan is a spirit being. And so he embodied himself, if you will, in a uh, a snake. And so the snake is cursed, and it slithers on its belly. That's the curse that God gave to the the snake. But there's a curse to Satan as well. Um, He would be in opposition between Satan... I'm sorry, there would be opposition between Satan and the woman. And, of course, it wasn't just Satan and Eve, but it would be all of her descendants, all of the people that would come as a result of of Adam and Eve. And between Satan's seed, that is the demonic forces that he musters, and her seed, and we know that her seed is a reference to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, that is Christ, shall bruise or crush Satan's head. When you have a crush to a a head, you have a mortal wound. And so he will crush Satan's head. It will be a mortal wound of defeat, while Satan would inflict a wound to Christ's heel. And it's amazing that back in the Garden of Eden, the gospel is presented. The Lord is making a promise here to Adam and Eve and to every future generation that he was going to take care of the sin problem and what happened here in the garden, the curse. And though Satan would bruise his heel, that's a reference to the cross and the crucifixion. And when we think about the, the horrors of the cross and Jesus Christ suffering on the cross for our sins, God likens it here in this passage to a simple bruise on the heel. And in that same death on the cross... Christ inflicts a mortal wound to our enemy, Satan, and defeats him. (laughs) Only God could do that. Only God could do that. And here he speaks in a prophetic way of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would suffer and bleed and die on behalf of the human race. The one act at Calvary accomplished both, and Christ's death, burial, and resurrection assured Adam and all who would follow him... um, that God would fix the sin problem, but it would cost him his son. Adam called his wife's name Eve and and so on. I'm not going to go on um, except to say this. Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Remember, they had made um, fig leaves and put them around themselves, tried to hide themselves behind it from God. And God said, no, your your works or, or the way you're trying to, to be right with me and, and be presentable in my sight isn't the right way. There is one way to be presentable to God, and that is through the shed blood of a victim, of a, an innocent victim. And so he took an animal as a representative um, and killed the animal, and the blood was shed and clothed Adam and Eve in the skins of that animal as a symbol or as a sign or as a picture, if you will, of what God was going to do in the future. And the only thing that makes us right in God's presence is not what we can do to be better or uh, do to make ourselves right with God. It doesn't work. It's like sowing fig leaves around ourselves and God sees right through it. The only thing that makes us right with God is that innocent victim who suffered and bled and died for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He clothes us not in skins, but in His own righteousness, And that is what makes us acceptable in God's sight. That is the picture that we have here in in Genesis of what God was going to do and has done for us. Someone has said that Christ has gained for us far, far more than Adam ever lost. You know, it might be a wonderful thing if Adam and Eve had never sinned to live on a paradise of sorts on earth and enjoy eating fruit and vegetables and warm sunshine, and it's kind of like a vacation in Hawaii, but permanently. You know? And if they had eaten the fruit of the uh, tree of life, that could have happened, I guess. But what we have in Christ doesn't even compare to that eternity hawaii vacation okay it doesn't it doesn't even compare we are in christ and all of the blessings that are his have become ours because we are in him can't even begin to fathom all that that means this is not paradise lost it's paradise gained through the lord jesus christ And so we come full circle to our original question. Why is there suffering on planet Earth? And why does all creation groan as if it's in childbirth? What we are facing in 2008 and into the future until the Lord comes are the far-reaching consequences of this one act in the garden of sin. We have seen the source of all hurt and suffering and pain and death that we ex- experience of uh, human beings since the fall. And these tragedies and sorrows should cause us to see our need of a Savior. That's really the purpose of them. As there are difficulties that we face in life and we begin to see, look, we are helpless and we are hopeless without Christ. That's what it should do. It should drive us to our knees that we should say, Lord, save me, a sinner. Those who have found the Lord Jesus Christ, your heart should skip a beat when you hear about tragedies. Not that we are free or careless about the tragedies that are going on in the world today. I don't mean that at all. But these are signs or indications that the Lord is coming back. His coming is very, very near. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is coming to take us home to be with Him forever. And it will be a place that far surpasses the Garden of Eden. It will be a place of no more pain, no more sorrow, no goodbyes, no tears, and there will be no death there, and there will be no potential for any of these things again. I hope to see you there. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this story, we are... We recognize that what Adam did and what Eve did is exactly what we would have done in the garden. Lord, we are sinners by nature, that's true, but we are also clearly sinners by practice. And Lord, we have gone astray. In fact, Your Word says it so clearly. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We thank You so much for the rest of that verse. But the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. We thank You for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for us, that he paid sin's awful penalty and set us free. We thank you that by faith we can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, forgiven of all of our sins, and have our place in heaven with you for all eternity. Lord, we pray that if there are any here today that don't know you yet, that today might be the day of their salvation. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.